Well, good morning. So my name is Brandon Stern. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am a member of our preaching team. And last week, we began a series in the book of Revelation. And I am really excited about this study, and I am confident that God will do wonderful, good, and necessary things in all of us through our time in this book. After all, as Revelation 1-3 promises, a blessing to those who read, listen to, and keep the words of this book. So let's get blessed. So last week we saw Revelation is a different type of book than many of us are used to reading, right? Jesus uses many pictures and symbols to communicate his message to John. And he's doing this because he wants to engage our emotions. He wants our imaginations to come alive so that the truths that he is communicating to us will grip us at a core level. So for example, instead of just saying that the sinful world order is bad and dangerous, Jesus uses vivid language of a grotesque and scary beast. He's wanting us to not only know, but to feel deeply the foolishness and danger of compromise with the world. None of us in our right minds would ever want to do anything with the monsters that are described in this book. And that's the point. He's wanting to wake us up to the spiritual dangers in the world all around us because often the world doesn't appear that sinister. The temptations to compromise our faithfulness to Christ are subtle and take place gradually over time. Little compromises here and there, but before long, our affection for Christ has waned and our love for the world has grown. We have foolishly made friends with the beast and it's begun to devour us. So this is how revelation works. Jesus is speaking to his church using bright colors and powerful imagery, and we're going to see that in our passage today. But before Jesus starts describing beasts and seven-headed monsters and dragons, he wants to show us someone scarier and way more powerful than all the evil creatures put together. He wants this terrifyingly majestic figure to loom large in our hearts and minds, and to reshape our understanding of reality. So let's begin looking at our text together now. Look with me at Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, though we don't know it for sure, it seems very likely that this John is the Apostle John. He's the John that spent time with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, and then after Christ's death and resurrection, he watched him ascend back up into heaven. And a few weeks later, when Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit on John and the rest of his followers, they became his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So throughout the book of Acts, we have seen John and the rest of the apostles do just that. Early on in the book of Acts, John and Peter were arrested by the temple authorities for healing a lame man in the name of Jesus and then calling everyone around to repent of their sins and trust in this same Jesus. 
And at first, the temple authorities didn't know what to do with them. They just warned them to stop talking about Jesus, and then they let them go. But as Acts 4.20 tells us, Peter and John said, sorry, we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Jesus' resurrection had had such an impact on them that they could not stop talking about it. And so a little while later, Peter and John get arrested again, and this time they are beaten and ordered to stop talking about Jesus. But instead of growing discouraged and shutting up, Acts 5.41 says, they went out rejoicing because they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. So what's clear from these stories is that John loved Jesus and nothing could stop him from telling the good news of forgiveness of sins and hope of eternal life that are found in Jesus Christ alone. So all throughout his life, John has been sharing this good news of Jesus with others. And now because of his boldness in speaking about Jesus, he has ended up as a prisoner on the island of Patmos. And this is because Rome didn't take kindly to talk of another Lord other than Caesar. Domitian, the Roman emperor at the time, demanded to be worshipped as a god and didn't like Christians like John saying, nope, only Jesus is Lord and only Jesus is worthy of worship. But that didn't stop John. And so even as an old man, he found himself exiled from family, friends, comfort to the island of Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. But did you notice how John described himself in verse 9? He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus. Now, two of these words make sense together, don't they? We can see why John would say affliction and endurance. Endurance and perseverance are needed in the face of hardship, tribulation, and suffering. But why does John mention kingdom? That word doesn't seem to fit. What does kingdom have to do with affliction and endurance? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, everything. In Acts 14.22, Paul is going around strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, listen, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's necessary. So like John, Paul understood that affliction, kingdom, and endurance go hand in hand. You can't have the kingdom without the hardships. And this really shouldn't surprise us because this is what our king modeled for us. Jesus' life was characterized by much suffering, even to the point of death on a Roman cross. And yet this, this is how he brought his kingdom into the world, by laying down his life to pay for his people's sins. For Jesus, suffering preceded glory. The cross came before the crown. And if this is true for the king of the kingdom, it must be true for us as citizens of his kingdom. 
One commentator, Greg Beale, puts it well. He writes of Christ's kingdom, one cannot exercise kingdom rule except through tribulation and endurance. The exercise of rule in this kingdom begins and continues only as one faithfully endures tribulation. Until Christ's kingdom comes in its fullness when he returns to this earth, our present participation in his kingdom will involve necessarily our patient endurance of affliction. The sinful world order that hated and killed Christ will, as Christ assured us, hate us as well. But like Christ, we too must patiently endure suffering before entering into glory. And this is what John is modeling for his readers, and this is what King Jesus is calling all of his followers to do. So let's keep reading and see how Jesus does this. How does he call us into this faithful endurance through affliction, enjoying his kingdom? Look with me at verses 10 through 11. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me, like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So notice first how John describes the voice he hears. He says it was like a loud trumpet blast. In other words, it got your attention. It was powerful. It was commanding. And so John hears this attention-arresting voice commanding him to write what he sees and send it to the seven churches throughout Asia Minor. But notice that John doesn't jump straight into the content of what Jesus wanted to say to the churches yet. That doesn't start until chapter 2. So the question is, why? What is the purpose of verses 12 through 20? What is the purpose of the rest of chapter 1? Why not just get into the message to the churches? Jesus knows that before he shares his message with the churches, he must first reveal himself to them. If the churches are going to listen to and keep his word to them, they need to understand who it is that is speaking to them. This is why the question, says who, is such an important one for us, right? If it's just my sister telling me to turn my PlayStation off, that's not going to happen, right, guys? But if mom's the one who said, turn it off, then it needs to happen. And at work, when new directives come, often people will say, this came straight from the top. Or they'll say, the boss said such and such. This is because it matters who is giving the message. An employee at Starbucks can walk in and announce to everybody, we're done selling coffee, we're going to make burgers now. No one would listen. But if the CEO of Starbucks says the same thing, well, that certainly changes things, doesn't it? The baristas are going to have to learn how to flip some burgers. It matters who is giving the message. And it really matters when the message is as important as the one John is about to receive to pass on to the churches. 
So verses 12 through 20 are focused on presenting who Jesus is so that his church will know why they should listen to and keep his word to them. So let's pick up the story in verse 12. John has just heard this loud, attention-grabbing voice speaking behind him. Verse 12, then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Now remember what I said earlier about Revelation being a different kind of book than we're used to reading? Here we go. Revelation loves to use pictures and symbols to communicate its message. And one commentator, Richard Philip, helpfully explains it this way. He writes, This does not show us what Jesus looks like, but rather what Jesus is like. It's symbolically depicting his person and work. So this, listen, this is important. John is not providing details for a sketch artist. Jesus doesn't actually have a double-edged sword for a tongue, and his eyeballs aren't these great balls of fire. No, John is painting a vivid, engaging picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. So let's think together about the picture of Jesus that John is painting for us. Notice that John begins by referring to him in verse 13 as one like the Son of Man. Now, this is a title Jesus loved to use for himself during his earthly ministry. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is identifying himself as the Son of Man. And in calling himself this, Jesus was saying way more than that he was just simply human. He was claiming to be this world-ruling cloud-riding, never-dying king of the cosmos that Daniel 7 talks about. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees this vision of God, who he refers to as the Ancient of Days, being served by thousands upon thousands of people. Daniel then describes how this Ancient of Days judged and destroyed his enemies. And then, in verse 13 of Daniel 7, this unexpected character enters the scene. Look with me on the screen. Suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. 
Jesus is this human and divine figure whose kingdom will outrule and outlast all the kingdoms of this world. There is absolutely nothing that can overpower this king and his kingdom. It is a kingdom that cannot and will not be destroyed. So here we are coming face to face with unmatched power and authority. There is no one who can stand in the way of this king and his kingdom. The Son of Man is the majestic ruler and judge of all the earth. However, he is not only a king, he is also a priest. John describes him in the rest of verse 13 as being dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. This is a description of kingly and priestly clothes. So what John is doing is he is bringing these two offices of Christ together. He is saying, Jesus is our perfect priest and perfect king. And then in verse 14, John does something very, very interesting. He describes the hair of his head as white as wool, white as snow. And what's amazing about this is that this is how Daniel described the ancient of days in Daniel 7. Verse 9, Daniel 7, the ancient of days took his seat, his clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. What John is doing by describing Jesus with snow white hair is he's connecting the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days. In other words, the Son of Man is not merely a man. He is also God. He shares the same eternal nature and all-knowing wisdom of God. He is God himself in human form. No wonder he's given an eternal kingdom. John next describes the Son of Man's penetrating gaze. He says his eyes are like a fiery flame. Now, it doesn't take much for us to understand what John is communicating about Jesus here. As our ruler and judge, Jesus sees everything and will hold us accountable to it. I love what Nancy Guthrie says about Jesus' fiery eyes. She writes, Jesus doesn't just look at us. He looks into us, right? And if we are willing to hold his gaze, he will burn away what is meaningless and frivolous and contaminating. Jesus' fiery gaze has a purifying power on those who submit themselves to him. But his gaze consumes those who rebel against him. In verse 15, John describes Jesus' feet. He says they are like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. Jesus is uniquely qualified to judge because he stands on the incorruptible, solid foundation of purity, truth, and righteousness. And so it is no coincidence that in calling the church of Thyatira to moral purity and faithfulness to him, Jesus introduces himself to them in his letter next chapter as the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. 
the church in Thyatira needed to be reminded that Jesus sees all they do and he will hold them accountable for their actions. And so they must repent and return to the incorruptible, solid foundation of purity and faithfulness to Christ. And at the end of verse 15, John again describes the voice of Jesus. However, this time, instead of a loud trumpet, he says, his voice is like the sound of cascading waters. So think Niagara Falls, this this thundering, powerful, impossible to be ignored voice. There is no voice greater than this one. And yet how often do we allow the little, lesser voices of the world to distract us from the thundering voice of our King? Well, in verse 16, John continues to fill out his picture of Jesus by using the imagery of a sharp, double-edged sword that comes from his mouth. What John is communicating here is the authoritative power of Christ's word. His word is what executes judgment. In the end, all the forces of evil will be no match for the word of Christ. His word will thunder across the galaxy, bringing judgment and destruction on all of his enemies. None will be able to stand before it. All will be swept away by its overwhelming power. However, it's not only the sinful world that needs to fear Christ's sword, but also his church. In his letter to the church in Pergamum, Jesus says, repent, repent, church, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against those who are unrepentant with the sword of my mouth. So we as the church must be quick to repent of our sins so that we do not find ourselves under the disciplining sword of Christ's judgment. And lastly, John describes Jesus' face at the end of verse 16. He says his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Just, Just imagine the brilliance, the glory of Jesus. And for John, this must have brought him back to the Mount of Transfiguration all those many years earlier. Because there on that mountain with Peter and James, Jesus was transfigured in front of them. And Matthew describes the scene like this in Matthew 17. He says that when Jesus was transfigured in front of them, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. So there on the mountain that day, Peter, James, and John had seen a glimpse of the glory of the Son of Man that lay hidden beneath his flesh for the 33 years Christ lived on this earth. But now, but now that Christ has been resurrected and ascended back into heaven, his glory is no longer hidden. The glory of his resurrected face is shining brighter than the sun at full strength, and it's too much for John to bear. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. John is overwhelmed by the glory, the majesty, the power of Jesus. 
beholding the Son of Man in all his glory is too much for him. And so he collapses to the ground as if dead. In the face of such radiant holiness, John is utterly undone. He becomes oh so acutely aware of his sinfulness and he falls down in terror before the awesome, overwhelming glory and holiness of Jesus. And yet, notice the mercy of this mighty one. Verse 17 goes on to say, he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What remarkable tenderness. What incredible grace. This mighty and majestic king of glory reaches down to John, gently puts his right hand on him and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, John. I am the first and the last I rule over human history from beginning to end. My sovereignty is exhaustive. I am perfectly orchestrating my plan. There is nothing that has happened, is happening, or will happen that I am not in control of. I am the first and the last. John, don't be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead, but look, John, I am alive forever and ever. I am the one who died but couldn't stay dead. I threw off death shackles and powerfully emerged from the grave never, ever to die again. Look, John, I am alive forever and ever. Oh, John, don't be afraid. I hold the keys of death and Hades. I went down into death and I came out victorious on the other side. I have conquered the greatest enemy. It may seem like Rome has power over death, but they don't. Death and Hades answer to me now. No one can be sent there without my permission. I rule over death, and I can free anyone I choose. It's here that we see the incredible mercy of this majestic one. Because in order to conquer death on behalf of his people, he had to first conquer their sin. And this is because sin and death are intimately connected. Death is the unavoidable consequence for our sin and our rebellion against God. So in conquering death for his people, Jesus paid the penalty for their sin. He took all of his people's sins upon himself and he died in their place for their sins. And this is why he can say to anyone who trusts in him, oh, don't be afraid. Your sins have been paid for and death has no power over you now. I am the living one. Yes. So if you are here today and you want to be set free from the guilt of sin and the fear of death, turn to this Jesus 
Admit your sinfulness to him and ask him to save you. And on the authority of God's word, I can promise you that Jesus will reach out to you in mercy, lay his right hand on you, and assure you today that you no longer need to be afraid. So this, this is the vision of Jesus that John and the seven churches needed to see, and this is the vision, New Covenant, that we need to see today. We need to see who is speaking to us so that we will be compelled to listen and obey his word. So after revealing both the majesty and the mercy of himself to John, Jesus repeats his commission for John to write. Look at verse 19. Therefore, in light of who I am, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. So throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, Jesus will be revealing what it will be like for his people while they wait for his return. And guess what? It will often be difficult and hard. Remember what we talked about earlier. Until Christ's kingdom comes in its fullness, our present participation in his kingdom will necessarily involve our patient endurance of affliction. There will be constant pressures from the world to compromise. But we must, oh, we must patiently endure. We must not give up. And what will strengthen us to do this is by beholding the majesty and mercy of Jesus. We must never forget who it is that is calling us to persevere. It is only when we are seeing Jesus correctly that we will be able to resist both the seduction and the oppression of the sinful world order. It's Jesus in all his glory, all his power, all his majesty, all his mercy that must loom large over our lives. And so this is why, before giving us the rest of the book of Revelation, Jesus presents himself to us in all his glory. He wants us to know who he is and what he has done for us. He is the magnificent, all-powerful son of man who has defeated death on our behalf. But there's one final thing Jesus wants his churches to know. Jesus wants his churches to know not just who he is, but where he is. Look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Look back up at verses 12 and 13. What did John see? Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among, among, among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. John sees Jesus standing among his churches. The glorious, all-powerful, death-conquering Jesus is with his people. 
Jesus is not distant from his people. He's not unaware of what they are going through or where they are struggling. He's among them. He's with them. And he cares deeply for them. And Jesus is with us. And he cares deeply for us. I love how Brett Davis puts it. He writes, God is actually at work right now on your Patmos, in your loneliness, in your pain, in your struggle, in your exile. The word of death cannot outspeak the word of God. Despite all appearances, despite our doubts and desperation, despite the pain of prison and Patmos, Jesus and his kingdom are in the middle of everything and stronger than anything. This is what Christ wants his people to know and to remember. He and his kingdom are in the middle of everything and they're stronger than anything. So his church need not fear the beasts and the monsters that threaten her, but faithfully listen to and keep his powerful word of grace to them. May God capture our hearts with this vision of our majestic and mighty King. Let's pray.